invite you to turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 20 and following. Ephesians 4, verse 20, if you'll read down through verse 24. These verses speak of what it means to have learned Christ. Notice, it doesn't say something that you have learned about Him, but that you have learned Him Himself. Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you speak to us through your word. It is what we need we trust, Lord, that you will do it for Christ's sake. And we pray in his name. Amen. You'll notice verse 20 begins with an emphatic change from one group of people described in verses 17 through 19, those who are described as Gentiles or pagans, a summary of what it means to be lost, a description of unbelief is given in verses 17 through 19, and we're going to return to those just a bit before we move on into verse 20. Verse 20 itself beginning with something that is totally the opposite, addressing a whole new group of people, believers who are categorized by things that are very much the direct opposites of those who were described in verse 17. Through 19. I want to do so by reading verse 17 through 19 in the English Standard Version. I read it uh, this week several times in that version, and I think the sense really comes across very clearly. Verses 17 through 19 in the ESV, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And again, Paul is saying that those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should not live should not have their lives be defined by these things that end in lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. So I want to talk about those three words before we move on. The word lewdness, you'll notice, is the end of those that have a vain mind, darkened understanding, alienated from God, indwelt by ignorance, blind in heart, who have become calloused or past feeling. They have given themselves over to lewdness. 
Lewdness is not a word that we use often anymore. It's translated again in the ESV by sensuality and has a literal meaning of unbridled lust or shamelessness. Paul goes on from that word and he uses the word uncleanness. This can apply either to a physical act or to a moral or has a moral aspect to it as well. It is any physical or moral impurity that is driven by lust. And then the last word that he uses is greediness. This word speaks of an insatiable desire for more and can be applied to many things across the board. So you take these together, and these are the ending of this description of what Paul says that Christians, Ephesian Gentile Christians, are no longer to live or to walk as these Gentiles walked because this is where it ends. It ends in a life that is not pleasing to God. It ends in a life that is unbridled. It ends in a life that is physically or morally impure and with an insatiable desire for more and more and more of these things. But before we get to that end, before we turn the corner in verse 20, I want you to notice what just comes prior to this description of lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. Notice it is The Gentiles have given themselves over to these things. It's an interesting word, to be given over. It's the word often used in the Scriptures to be delivered, but to a purpose. Delivered to be imprisoned. It's the word used to describe what Judas did to Christ when he betrayed him. So it's a word that speaks of betrayal or deliverance for some purpose of punishment or imprisonment. And Paul tells us here that those that have not experienced conversion, those that have not received a new heart, those that have not been regenerated by the Spirit of God, live in the vanity of their mind, the darkness of their understanding, live out the alienation from God, and because of ignorance and blindness of heart, because they have become calloused to spiritual things and to the very life of God Himself, that they, in a sense, in essence, give themselves over to lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. You might see the correlation to this with Romans chapter 1, but with one great difference. There it is said that God gave them up to experience these vile passions amongst themselves. So the scripture really speaks, whether it's Romans 1 or here in Ephesians chapter 4, when it gives these great descriptions of what it means to live a life outside of Christ, separated from God. There are two ways that we can think about it, and we see it played out in real everyday life. There is a sense, according to Paul in Romans 1, that God himself gives people over to their lust, gives people over to their desire to exchange the truth of God for the lie. There is no more harnessing of God on their 
passions, through their conscience. God turns them over unto themselves. Though it's worded differently, I think the thought is basically the same here. And when, when Paul says in the fourth chapter of Ephesians that those who are identified or described in these ways eventually, whether under full realization, probably not, they give themselves over to lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness. There is not a more fearful place to be in life than to be given over or to be turned over into your own vile passions. It is a judgment of God. It does not speak of a coming judgment so much as it speaks of a judgment already past. To be turned over or to yourself, give yourself over to these types of things is evidence of the judgment of God upon you or upon a society, upon a group of people. And even though Paul phrases this, that this is a description of the Gentiles, just know this is a description of every unbelieving person. Now, I think it's important always to stop and temper that by saying that not every unbeliever reaches the depths of Romans 1 or reaches the depths of Ephesians chapter 4 and works out their depravity in the same way. But, but beside all of that, the end is the same. It is a judgment of God given to you who persist in living a life that is contrary to His will and to His way. And this is what we're reading of here when, we, when we're reminded of these things. Then it makes verse 20 all the more stark in contrast. Paul is writing to a group of people. I'll remind you back in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 have, who have experienced the rich mercy of God and the great love of God even when they were dead in trespasses and sinners. And sins. This reminds us of where we all once were, what we all have experienced, and how undeserving we are for the great love and the mercy of God to have been directed toward us at all. It also reminds us of the miracle of conversion, that there can be such a stark contrast and difference between that life that is unbelieving and that life that is now believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read these kind of descriptions of the lost world around us, we need to be reminded of what the real remedy is. And we need to be reminded of this often. The business of Christianity is not to improve the world. It is to get men out of the world. The business of Christianity is not to begin to address with all different types of programs and things that will hopefully end in an improvement of society. The business of Christianity is to preach to the gospel to those who are ensnared in sin, 
to those who are living a life outside of Christ, to those that are living with no hope, those who are alienated from the life of God, to preach the gospel to them in hopes that the Spirit of God will take that message and use it for their good and bring them to faith in Christ and will change them from the inside out. This is our great hope. This is why when we see things lived out in everyday life that match these descriptions given to us in Scripture, our first response to it should be, preach the gospel. People need to hear the goodness of Christ. Our judgment passed upon them serves them no good and really bears no weight. But when we meet this with the preaching of the gospel, then we can say we are acting in a biblical manner. So let's turn the page, so to speak, and look at verse 20. Paul is here addressing believing Gentile Christians. The first two words of verse 20 are emphatic. But you, you're different. There is something categorically different about who you are. You are not described by futility, vanity, darkened understanding, alienation from God, ignorance, or blindness of heart. You are not to be described as those who are past feeling, whose consciences have been seared over as with a hot iron and grown calloused to the things of God. He says it this way, But you have not so learned Christ. What does it mean to learn Him? What does it mean to have Christ expressed in your heart, in your life? This is the same word that Jesus uses in those familiar verses back in Matthew 11. When he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Here is the invitation of Christ to come and to, again, learn from him. To be taught the things of Christ by Christ. This is what Paul has in mind here in verse 20. You have not so learned him. And then he begins this long string that really continues all the way through the end of the epistle of imperatives for Christians to obey. And it begins, as we read this morning, with the putting off of the old and putting on of the new. Perhaps this is a good place to interject And to speak of those who struggle with the understanding of the insistence of good works in the life of a Christian. Because the rest of the book really is filled with a call to good works. By putting away lying. You see that in verse 25. You you see the be angry and do not sin. Do not steal. Do not give place to the devil. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But only that which is necessary for edification be imitators of God is how the fifth chapter begins and then there is another call to put away all of these things fornication uncleanness covetousness let them not even be named among you which are fitting for the saints of God and this entire book of Ephesians is filled with things for us as Christians to obey so it's imperative that we understand this relationship of 
of good works. And to do that, we have to go back to the second chapter and see how Paul brings this into the life of a Christian and to see that it is right for us to insist on fruit-bearing. It is right for us to insist on there being real evidence of conversion. It accords with Paul. It accords with Christ. It accords with what we've already studied. When you go back to the second chapter in the eighth verse, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. But if you keep reading and you get to the tenth verse, it says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why we insist on the biblical doctrine of good works. Not that it gets us into right standing with God, nor keeps us in right standing with God, but it is the absolute expectation of Scripture that those that have undergone this dramatic thing the Scripture calls conversion or regeneration will bear fruit of it. A tree is known by its fruits, by its fruit. That is the expectation of Christ. That's the expectation of Paul here in this fourth chapter, that we will live out what we have been given. So back to verse 20. You have not so learned him. He has taught you differently. The truth that corresponds to Christ has nothing in common with verses 17 through 19. He is altogether different. And He calls you and I to be altogether different as well. Notice the second part of verse 20, beginning into verse 21. If... Indeed, you have heard him and have been taught by him. These two words, if indeed, are concerning. We need to understand what Paul means. And I like this way of understanding it. If we understand it this way, if, as I take for granted... You have, learned, you have heard him and have been taught by him. I don't so much suppose that Paul is trying to introduce doubt. That's why some of the translations take the words if indeed and just put since. Since this has happened. But the phrase if as I take for granted leaves that attention grabbing aspect of it in place. You have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him. And so the correlation is made to have learned Christ necessarily means then that you have heard Him. That you have heard the truth applied by the Spirit of God. Here's a question for you. And don't misunderstand the question. I'm not speaking of an audible hearing. Have you heard 
Jesus Christ. When he calls you into himself, those words that we read back in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. This is a call to those that are encumbered with sin and an incessant attempt to rid themselves of it. How can you read these words without having in your mind the picture of John Bunyan's pilgrim with that burden upon his back, trying every which way he can to loose himself from it, and yet there is no remedy. So the invitation of Christ, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and notice the promise, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You know whose soul has no rest? Whose soul is always in a state of agitation? It is those that are described in verses 17 through 19. And you can take those descriptions that are found there in verse 17 through 19, and what you will see there is it is a definition of those who only have an interest in the affairs of this life who are trying to get more and more out of the things that this life has to offer. That's why their minds are futile. There is no eternal mindedness. There is no eternal perspective about them at all. It is all here and now. These are the very ones that Christ calls to come unto himself and find rest. I'd encourage you sometime to do a word study or a larger biblical study on rest. The Christian's rest. This day is a picture of our eternal rest in Christ where we eternally cease from our labors and we are resting in Christ alone. Go and read the fourth chapter of Hebrews in verse 9. There remains a rest for the people of God. And here Jesus is calling individually. This is addressed to you. If you are outside of Christ and not yet in Christ by faith, the call is to come and find rest in Him. To cease from your own works. This is what it means to learn Christ. To have heard Him. And to have been taught by Him. Notice Paul categorizes this. As the truth is in Jesus. This is the only place where Paul uses this name of Christ in isolation. Usually it's Jesus Christ. Or our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or some variation of that. But here Paul says, speaking of the truth just as the truth in Jesus. So I think it would be right of us to back away from this and ask, what is the truth in Jesus? As it is placed into this context of verse 17 through 19 being the categorization of unbelief, verses 20 and following being the description of those who are believers in Christ, what is the truth in Jesus? Can I make it as simple as I can. The truth in Jesus is 
that you must be in right relationship to Christ if you are to have any hope at all. You must be in right relationship to God, His Father, and ours if you are to have any hope at all. Regardless of how good this life in this world is, the truth in Jesus says if you are not one who has your sins forgiven, one who has been made new in Christ, then you will suffer for all eternity in making payment for your sin. That's the truth in Jesus. The truth in Jesus could also be stated this way. That He has provided everything necessary for your salvation. That God has so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is the truth in Jesus. The truth in Jesus calls you to come to Him, repenting of your sin, casting your all by faith upon Him, to find your identity in Christ. This is the truth in Jesus. Have you heard Him? Have you been taught this by Him? If you have, then you are standing in marked distinction from those who are unbelieving, who have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. To say it another way, the truth in Jesus is that God His Father gave His only Son perfect without spot, without blemish, so that you may be made right in His sight. Think of it this way. If you are still rejecting Christ, then there is in your own estimation some kind of distorted thinking that you and you alone, the way that you are currently comprised, can stand before a holy God and hope for a good end. The truth in Christ tells us that there are none who are perfect. There are none who have not fallen into sin. There are none who stand outside of the need for full restoration to God through faith in Christ. That's the truth in Jesus. Have you heard it? Have you been taught this by Him? Notice where this paragraph ends. We're not going to get to it today so much, but just as the first, first paragraph ended with lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness, this second paragraph, beginning with verse 20, ends with true righteousness and holiness. The exact opposite ends of the spectrum. What makes the difference? Right in the middle, having learned Christ, having heard Him, having been taught Him, having been brought to the truth as it is in Jesus. There is no greater need that you have than to know the truth in Christ. And that applies to an unbeliever as well as to a believer. But yet this is the very thing that He has been pleased to teach us. Note the word learned here that you have not so learned Christ speaks to 
the improvement of the mind. It speaks to filling a void. Doesn't that fit with Paul's description of those who are unbelieving with vain minds and darkened understandings? Now, when we learn Christ, our minds and our hearts are flooded with truth. Our mind is renewed. Our heart has been given to us anew. And we have learned the truth. We have come to Christ. Is this a description of who you are? This is something that Paul has taken for granted that a believer would have firmly settled in their own heart and in their own mind. And it leads them, notice, the truth in Jesus. My Bible places a colon after that phrase. And in so doing, it gives off the impression that what follows in verses 22 and and down through verse 24 are elements, are points of what the truth in Jesus is. The first thing that heads the list that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. There are some who would tell you Christianity is all mental, it's in the mind. Paul says the truth in Christ, the truth in Jesus, concerns conduct, the way that you live, the way that you act. He says, put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And you can almost see that progression of of corruptness in verses 17 through 19. As the old man there is described with great detail and how this corruption ends in lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness, and it's all according to deceitful lusts. Don't miss those two words together. Lust in an unconverted heart, in an unbelieving mind, is deceitful. It promises much, but delivers on nothing. It promises much, but leaves you empty. Paul says this is what is to be put off. He calls it the old man, which corresponds with the doctrine of remaining sin. And notice, nowhere in Scripture are we taught that the old man is eradicated or done away with. We're taught repeatedly that he is to be dealt with swiftly. He is to be dealt with by putting him off. How quickly does the old man revive in you? Paint this picture in your own mind. The old man of sin needs very little to stimulate him, to cause him to raise his head And begin to seek out ways to conduct himself in and through your life again. I suspect that you know this to be true in your own life. The old man is always lying there. He is awaiting opportunity 
to express himself. Believing the truth in Christ, having learned from Christ, has not totally eradicated him. That's what makes the hope of heaven all the more glorious for us, right? Because there will be no old man any longer. There will be no remaining sin to deal with. The old word that's not used much anymore, but which Paul writes of in Romans chapter 8, the way to deal with the old man is to mortify him. Put him to death. How do you do that? Well, by the truth in Jesus. Having learned of Christ, having heard Him, and having been taught by Him, leads to this first and probably the foremost way of living out the truth in Christ is that you put away your former conduct that was described as being lived out in the alienation of your life from God, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God. Notice that both of these are presented to us as things that we must do responsibly before God as living the Christian life. The scriptures do not tell us that the old man is going to be put off for us or that the new man is going to be put on for us. It lays the responsibility squarely upon us as believers. Will we or will we not do these things? Notice the old man grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, but the new man was created according to God in righteousness and holiness. You can't get more exact opposite than these two things. And to remind you of the larger context, Paul is saying, because you have been placed into the body of Christ, because you have been washed in His blood and received gifts that correspond to what He would do in and through you to build His church, so that the entirety of the church would reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ to a perfect man, to no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If you are to be used of Christ in His body to accomplish the purpose for which He has placed you in this body, then the old man in you must be dealt with every single day you have to put him off he grows corrupt on the other hand Paul would write in another place that this inward man this new man is growing stronger and stronger every day This is what it means to learn Him, to hear Him, to be taught by Him. Are you this marked, markedly different from the unbelieving world around you? Are you living in distinction? And you may say, well, you're putting too much responsibility and weight on me. Well, we do this in the help and dependence of the Spirit of God, but we realize it to be a responsibility that is placed on us to live as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we move forward, we're going to see how 
clearly Paul speaks to this. Put away lying. Be angry and do not sin. And then as we move even further down toward the end of this epistle, a specific word to husband, wives, and children. And thinking about this whole issue of application of Christian doctrine. I read this this week and it is a great illustration. The Puritan Thomas Manton. He said, doctrine is only the drawing of the bow. Application is releasing the arrow and hitting the mark. So when you apply that thought to Ephesians chapter to Ephesians as a whole, roughly generally speaking the first 3 chapters are the drawing of the bow. We're learning right things. We're learning who we are in Christ. We're learning what we have been saved from. We're learning what we have been saved unto. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, all of the energy that has been drawn into that bow is released into the world where we are called to be lights in darkness and the very salt of the earth. And it all comes back to this 20th verse. How we have learned Christ how He has taught us, and how we have heard Him. Let me encourage you. If you're thinking in your own heart and mind, I haven't learned Him this way. Remember the invitation of Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. This is the starting point. You can't move forward in obedience to all of these commands. I've said before, said it last week and further back, there are more commands to obey in the latter half of Ephesians than in any other New Testament book. We can't move forward into obedience to those things until we have settled in our hearts and our minds once for all of learning Christ the truth in Jesus. My hope and prayer for all of you and all of your children, your grandchildren, whomever, is that the Lord would so manifest His grace, teach us all of of Himself in truth so that we could live accordingly and bring honor and praise to Him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these verses and the reminder that as believers in Christ, there is to be a marked difference in our lives. Lord, you have blessed us so much and given us so much. You have caused us to understand so much about sin and salvation, about Christ and what he has done. You have given us such hope You have worked a miracle in our life by bringing us from the deadness of sin to life in Christ. By bringing us from the end products of lewdness, uncleanness, and greediness now to true righteousness and holiness. 
Father, our desire is to live unto your glory and to your honor. Lord, would you so work in us that that could become more and more a reality? Teach us more and more how to deal with the old man of sin that resides within us, how to mortify the deeds of the flesh and the body, how to more and more put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and holiness, how to live in light of these great facts. Oh God, I pray you would give us much help of the Spirit that we would not strive to live out these things in our own strength, thinking that we could accomplish them in that way. Lord, give grace upon grace, and more grace we pray. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.